My name is Jonathan Shackleton, an Irish cousin of Serana Shackleton, who himself was born in County Kildare in 1874. Serana Shackleton is probably Ireland's best-known explorer, celebrated internationally for his expeditions to Antarctica, and especially for his heroic feats of survival after his ship, the Endurance, became trapped in the ice. His ensuing journey to save his men has been chronicled in books, films and theatre. Now, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we all find ourselves asked to endure. In our case, to endure isolation, boredom and anxiety while we try to stop the spread of this virus and protect the health of ourselves and everyone else. In 1914, just before his endurance expedition, Shackleton wrote about what he felt were four qualities needed as a polar explorer, which he also felt were necessary for every person to go through this world successfully. He put these in the order he felt were most essential. These were, first, optimism, second, patience, third, idealism, fourth, courage. We can learn from Shackleton that these qualities can help us through the next few weeks and months. So we have highlighted and discussed them for you in this short podcast series. We hope you enjoy it. And if we've piqued your interest in Shackleton or polar exploration, then consider joining us at the next Shackleton Autumn School in Ireland at Athai, County Kildare. December 29th. After a further reconnaissance, the ice ahead proved quite unnegotiable. So at 8.30pm last night, to the intense disappointment of all, instead of forging ahead, we had to retire half a mile so as to get on a stronger flow, and by 10pm we had camped, and all hands turned in again. The extra sleep was much needed however disheartening the check may be. During the night, a crack formed right across the flow, so we hurriedly shifted to a strong old flow about a mile and a half to the east of our present position. The ice all around was now too broken and too soft to sledge over, and yet there was not sufficient open water to allow us to launch the boats with any degree of safety. We had been on the march for seven days. Rations were short, and the men were weak. We were worn out with the hard pulling over soft surfaces, and our stock of sledging food was very small. We had marched seven and a half miles in a direct line, and at this rate it would take us over three hundred days to reach the land away to the west. As we had only food for forty-two days, There was no alternative, therefore, but to camp once more on the flow and to possess our souls with what patience we could till conditions could appear more favourable for a renewal of the attempt to escape. To this end, we stacked our surplus provisions, the reserve sledging rations being lashed on the sledges, and brought what gear we could from our but lately deserted ocean camp. Our new home, 
which we were to occupy for nearly three and a half months. We called Patience Camp. Can you just start by telling me your name and how you became interested in Shackleton? I'm Seamus Taff. I'm a director of the Shackleton Museum in Athai, and I was first drawn to the story of Shackleton when I read his book uh, South about 20 years ago. And what brought you to pick up the book South? Uh, the reason was is because the museum had developed a, a narrative around Shackleton and his life because he was born at a place called Kilkee near Athai. And it became apparent over the years running the museum that most of the visitors internationally had a great interest in the story of Shackleton and his life. Can you set the scene for us? What's happening to the Endurance Expedition on December 29th, 1915? As of December 29th, they're almost six months since they left the UK. Um, the ship has got trapped in the ice and the ship has now been crushed and destroyed by the ice. So they've, they've been forced to abandon the ship and their first inspiration is to try and get home, get home to safety. And they have this idea that they're going to try and drag the ships across the ice towards open water with a view to launching the ships into the southern oceans and aiming for the closest island, which in this case is an island called Paulette Island. But that, of course, doesn't work out, unfortunately. They're moving across a landscape, which is ice, which is hummocky. It's breaking up a lot of the time. And they're finding that they just can't manage the weight of the boats full of stores and all the men as well and all their equipment. So after about seven days of, of trying to drag their boats north, they decide to abandon the task. Instead of continuing to drag the boats, they set up another camp, and that's what they've called Patience Camp. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, name for the camp itself, and it kind of implies that they understood at that point in time that whatever their endeavours were going to be in terms of getting home, that patience was going to be a core attribute they're going to have to apply to the situation. And I think it's very interesting that one of the quotes that Shacklin referred to in his book, Sound, is he uses this quote, that they now needed to put the footstep of courage into the stirrup of patience. What he meant by that was that they couldn't take or make any rash decisions. They would have to buy their time, carefully consider what their options were, and prepare for the best possible moment to launch their boats into the southern oceans to make their way to safety. What are they actually looking for when they're waiting for that moment that's going to be right to launch the boats? What is it that would suggest to them it's a good time? Well, they're effectively living on an ice floe which is moving all the time. And they're hoping that the ice floe will drift far enough north that it will re reduce the uh, distance between themselves and the nearest island, which in this case at the time was Paulette Island. So they're, they're watching, they're, they're feeling their ice floe, which they're living on, drifting north all the time. And their hope is that when it gets as far north as is possible, they then launch their boats at that point in time. But of course, nature isn't like that. Nature doesn't necessarily give those easy solutions. So they spend approximately three and a half months on that ice floe making some progress towards the north, but back and forth, back and forth. And eventually there comes a point when the ice flow begins to break up and fall apart and they realise that they have to take their courage in their hands and launch the boats towards the southern oceans. And can you describe a little bit for me, what is Patience Camp like? Camp is a very generous term. It's essentially a, a series of, of tents erected on the ice with their stores and their equipment and also the three boats which, they, which they've salvaged from the Endurance. These are three what are called whalers and these are kind of large 20-foot boats are thereabouts, almost like lifeboats, I suppose. And there are three boats named after their three principal sponsors of the ex expedition. And these were the James Caird, the Dudley Docker, and the Stancombe Wills. These aren't boats that are designed for large journeys on the open seas. These are boats that you would use when you're in port to perhaps 
if you're two or three miles offshore to visit a port or if you're passing by an island to drop into an island. They are literally open boats. Okay, so they're waiting to launch the boats. They're hoping initially that they'll get to this uh, Paulette Island, but that actually doesn't come to pass. Instead, where do they head for? Towards the end of their stay on Patience Camp, they realised that Paulette Island is in the wrong direction. And more importantly, the winds that would favour favor the journey won't get them to Paulette Island. So they focus on Elephant Island instead, which is about seven days' journey from when they first launched the boats on the 8th of April 1916. What's involved in that journey, the, that seven-day journey? Do they know how long it's going to take them when they, they set out? They don't really. They, they probably think it's about five to ten days, depending on the winds and depending on the conditions at sea. And I suppose the seven-day journey isn't too bad. But by the time they get to Elephant Island, they're absolutely exhausted. And bear in mind, these men have been on the, on the ice for 12 months. They haven't bathed, they haven't shaved. They're eating reduced rations all the time. So they just get to Elephant Island by the skin of their teeth on the 15th of April, uh, 1916. It's a significant um, stage in their journey home. It's the first time they've stood on, on solid ground in almost 18 months. But they spend the first two weeks there enduring a blizzard of 70, 19 miles per hour. It's a quite difficult place to live on. Callington Island is a very generous description of what it is. It's a rocky place with a small little sandy beach on which they pitch their tents. And for the first two weeks there, they're, they're surviving these kind of blizzard-like conditions. Can you just expand a little bit? What kind of resources do they have on Elephant Island? Elephant Island is a very forbidding place. Um, there's very little natural water there, very little in the way of wildlife. I mean, they will hunt for seals and they'll hunt for penguins, but the reality is they're now coming into the Antarctic winter. And so those mammals and birds will migrate. They still have some stores left over from the endurance, but very little. So whatever they have, they're going to have to eke out very carefully over time. It's an extraordinarily difficult place to live. We mentioned the fact that they pitched their tents, but within two weeks, the tents are destroyed by the strong uh, strong hurricane-like winds. And eventually, prior to Shackleton's departure to, to South Georgia, they decide to turn two of the boats into a kind of a, a, kind of a hut for the, the 22 men who will stay behind. The reward for having extreme patience at patients' camp waiting for their moment is to be asked once again to be patient for the next stage of the journey. Yes, it's, it's an extraordinary ask of these 22 men because I suppose patience is not just about waiting. It's about being able to kind of suffer, suffer. Patience is, is an undersold virtue, I suppose. These men have already experienced awful hardships there on patients' camp and also at ocean camp. They're now being asked to spend an unforeseen amount of time in this, on this godforsaken place. Who knows how many months it'll be. Eventually, it'll turn out to be four and a half months, which is more than they probably anticipated. But I suppose they realise that if they don't endure these problems, they will never get home to safety. 22 men are left on Elephant Island and six men get in a boat to journey to South Georgia, including Shackleton. Before we look at the voyage of Shackleton in the James Caird, can we just consider for a moment what's going on on Elephant Island? What are they doing to help them endure? The most important decision Shackleton makes about who he leaves on Elephant Island is who he puts in charge. And he decides to put in charge his second in command, Frank Wilde. Frank has already been in the Antarctic a number of occasions over the last 10 or 15 years. A very experienced seaman as well, but a great leader of men as well. And Frank, reali- Frank Wilde realises that the most, the key thing to maintain the men's sanity is to have a very strict routine in terms of how they live their days. So, for example, every morning, two men get up at seven o'clock and start preparing the breakfast for the day. At 10 o'clock, they're all served their breakfast. Now, breakfast, when I say breakfast, that's a very generous description for what the meal is. It's either penguin meat or seal meat. But the routine is, is crucial to keeping the men's uh, spirits up. And even little things he also adapts as well as in terms of where they sit for their meal. The best place in the huts is right beside the stove. So each morning, 
a different man sits beside that stove. And that's something that the men can look forward to each day. They patiently wait their turn to sit beside the stove to enjoy their breakfast beside a bit of heat. Coupled with that, he also develops tasks during the course of the day. Someone goes out to keep a watch on the headland to see if there's any boats coming for rescue. Somebody has to go out and try and hunt for, for a seal or for penguin. They might collect limpets on the seashore or seaweed for cooking purposes. Every Saturday night they have a concert. They sing songs, they tell stories, they, they tell tales, they share jokes. These are all fundamental to preserving their spirits and to keeping them focused on the task in hand, which is staying well enough to survive, to be rescued in due course by Shackleton. They're not just sitting and waiting. They're actively engaged in maintaining their own health, keeping themselves fed. Everybody's involved, basically. Absolutely. Everybody has, no matter how weak or strong they are, they all have a task to fulfil. And it's important they understand that that, that that task contributes towards the safety and security of all those men for those four and a half months on that island. We can leave our 22 men under Frank Wilde on Elephant Island, but Shackleton has decided that they can't stay all hoping that someone's going to pass by Elephant Island and rescue them, that some of them are going to have to take a even more dangerous journey from Elephant Island to South Georgia. Well, Shackleton decides that someone must go for help and essentially decides upon himself as the leader because obviously he's got the profile. If they, if they reach civilization, he's the man to send a rescue mission to someone, someone abroad. He decides to take five men with him. So who does he choose? First person he chooses is Tom Crean, that irrepressible Irishman from, from Kerry, a strong person both psychologically and physically, and also an excellent man in small boats. He then brings with him Tim McCarthy from, from Kinsale, another Irish sailor, a man who's grown up in small boats and who was perfectly equipped to the task. The next man he picks then is Frank Worsley. Frank is the captain and navigator of the Endurance, but a man who went to sea at a very, very young age, and an extraordinary skilled navigator as well. And the final two members of the crew then are John Vincent, a trawlerman from Hull, and a man called Chippy McNish from Scotland. This is the very well-known um, shipwright and carpenter who carries out all the adaptions and improvements on the James Caird to make it as fit as possible. So they leave Elephant Island on the 20, 24th of April, 1916. Oddly enough, the exact same day that the Easter Rising starts in Dublin. And it's a very, very tricky voyage. It's a voyage which is hard to imagine they, they think they can survive because you're, they're heading into the worst, most challenging seas in the world, the Southern Oceans. They first tack north from Elephant Island and then they tack west, trying to catch the westerlies. And they then spend the next 16 or 17 days on this extraordinary journey through the most uncompromising seas in the world. McNish, the carpenter, has carried out certain adaptions. He's put a canvas decking across the top of the boat to protect him from the elements. He has raised the sides of the boat to, to give it some protection as well from the sea. But the boat is pitching and tossing in the sea the entire time. And the way they run the boat is they have two teams of three. So three men each day, every four hours, are looking after the ship by manning the till, steering the boat. They're looking after the sails and they're bailing constantly because the, the boat is pitching and tossing the whole time. It's taking on water the whole time. So one man must spend his entire time bailing. And then they rotate every four hours. Those three go back under cover. They rest, they sleep, they cook for the others. They make repairs to their equipment and their clothing where the other three go out on deck. Ice is accumulating on the ship, on the canvas and on the sails. And if they let that solidify or harden, it's going to weigh down the ship and make it, or the boat and make it very difficult to sail. So they spend two hours twice a day chipping very carefully the ice off the canvas and also off the sail of the boats. And the cold is so intense that a man can only do this work for three or four minutes and then he's replaced by a comrade. And this goes on constantly, 24 hours a day, 
for 16 or 17 days. And the final biggest task, I suppose, and perhaps the most challenging one of all, is the navigation, which is entrusted to Worsley as the captain. It's very overcast, it's very dark, it's very difficult to get a sighting of the sun. And they're navigated by, by use of a sextant. So Worsley must attempt every two or three days to take a reading from the sun. He must have two of his comrades hold him up. At the same time, somebody else is then below the canvas with the navigation tables recording his readings. They sight South Georgia, but that even then that isn't the end of the task ahead of them. When they get to South Georgia, they actually realise that they've actually arrived on the wrong side of the island. They find it very hard to land. So they must spend at least a night, a day and a half on the edge of South Georgia, just waiting for the time to make the run into the beach. And even then they must tack around the island a little bit to try and get to some safe kind of cove. So after about a day and a half at sea outside of South Georgia, they land. And you can imagine the relief felt by Shackland and his men. They're barely able to walk out of the boat. They've been at sea now for 16 or 17 days at this point in time. And even then, they're faced with an extraordinary journey. They're on the wrong side of the island from the whaling station. They have to cross South Georgia, an island which is not mapped. They have no equipment to do this. And at the same time, they're extraordinarily debilitated and run down. Shackland shows his extraordinary decision-making in the patience of deciding, so no, we won't cross the island now. We will wait two or three days to build up our strength. It's the, the goal is in sight all the time. And yet you have to, you know, hold back, make sure you don't do anything impulsive and don't just fail at the last hurdle. And I think there's a poem that you think that Shackleton was particularly inspired by. Do you want to read a little piece of that poem? Yes, the poem is called If by the British poet Rudyard Kipling. And it's very appropriate because around the time Shackleton was about to prepare himself to depart to the Antarctic, he was in the habit of gifting copies of the poem to friends, family and acquaintances. And actually, just interestingly enough, I only discovered recently that he actually had a copy of the poem framed and hung in, in the cabin of his ship in Endurance. And then when the ship was crushed in the ice, he retrieved that from his cabin and it carried it on his person all through the boat journey to South George as well. So this is the first couple of, of lines of the poem, If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on others, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting. And I think that's a wonderful line. I think it really feeds into the entire story. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting. If the one thing the endurance story tells us that this is something that Shackleton's men could do, they could wait and not be tired by waiting. Shackleton proves his talent for patience especially when he gets in a tight spot in the Antarctic. Um, but the same level of patience didn't necessarily apply in all aspects of his life. He, he had a habit in between expeditions of, of pursuing a business interest to, notable, to a notable lack of success. He was actually quite hasty. He was quite impetuous. At different times, he tried to start a, a tobacco company. He explored gold mines in Central Europe. He looked at ferrying troops to Russia none of which came to fruition, none of which were successful. But yet that same impetuousness or impulsiveness didn't filter into the Antarctic. He's quite a different man on the ice. It seemed like when he had the lives of others in his hands, he was more careful, more cautious, more considerate. In fact, the nickname that his colleagues gave him or his comrades gave him in Patience Camp, he was, he was known as Cautious Jack. Which maybe isn't the first nickname you might give to somebody who's sailed down to the Antarctic to try and cross to the South Pole. No, not at all, not at all. Do you see many parallels between the patience of that endurance expedition and our current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic? 
I think there are. I think that we've talked about a story where men were put in extraordinary situations and extraordinary challenges, and they're asked to go above and beyond the call of duty in terms of how they looked after themselves and their comrades. And I suppose we now find ourselves in a world where things have changed quite dramatically for all of us. We're, we were used to being able to travel the world at a drop of a hat, see our friends, do our business un, unhindered. We're now being asked to kind of live in a metaphorical ice flow ourselves. We can only go two kilometres from our, our own home. These are challenges we've never faced before. But I think we can find inspiration from the men of endurance in terms of how people can adapt to a situation very quickly, how they can bear with great forbearance and difficult and trying conditions. There's been dreadful death rates so far across the world. Health services are under huge pressure. I think it behoves all of us to treat all those people as part of our crew, that we all treat each other equally well and that the things we do for ourselves, we do for, do for the common good. And therefore, we need to exhibit these characteristics of patience. We need to wait for this wave of illness and sickness to pass over us. We need to be prepared to put our lives on hold for as long as necessary to preserve the community as a whole. We fought the seas and the winds and at the same time had a daily struggle to keep ourselves alive. We were upheld by the knowledge that we were making progress towards the land where we would be. But there were days and nights when we lay hove to, drifting across the storm-whitened seas and watching the uprearing masses of water flung to and fro by nature in the pride of her strength. Deep seemed the valleys when we lay between the reeling seas. High were the hills when we perched momentarily on the tops of giant combers. So small was our boat, and so great were the seas, that often our sail flapped idly in the calm between the crests of two waves. Then we would climb the next slope and catch the full fury of the gale where the wool-like whiteness of the breaking water surged around us. We had moments of laughter. Rare, it is true, but hearty enough. Even when cracked lips and swollen mouths checked the outward and visible signs of amusement, we could see a joke of the primitive kind. Man's sense of humour is always most easily stirred by the petty misfortunes of his neighbours, and I shall never forget Worsley's efforts on one occasion to place the hot aluminium stand on top of the Primus stove after it had fallen off in an extra heavy roll. With his frost-bitten fingers, he picked it up, dropped it, picked it up again, and toyed with it gingerly, as though it were some fragile article of ladies' wear. <laughs> we laughed, or rather gurgled with laughter. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Shackleton Do? I'm historian Juliana Edelman, and I'd like to thank the following people. Jonathan Shackleton is an Irish-born family historian and Antarctic explorer with many other interests including natural history and forestry. 
Seamus Taff is one of the directors of the Athai Shackleton Museum. The music you heard is from Shackleton's Endurance, which was commissioned by the museum in 2014 on the centenary of the Endurance Expedition. The music is by Brian Hughes, and there's a narrative that you haven't heard by John McKenna. John Carty is an actor and founding member of the Blue Raincoat Theatre Company based in Sligo. He read two extracts from Shackleton's book, Sam. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Athai Heritage or at Adolin Juliana for updates on the podcast. We'd ask you to like, review, subscribe, and share this podcast widely.